0: We have a Bible, Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we actually have Bibles in the back. So, uh, by all means, you know, we we do try to be a church where when you come, you're going to be saturated in the Scriptures. And... um That's a good thing if you love the Lord. And that's a good thing if you don't love the Lord. Because hopefully after you are saturated in the Scriptures, you will come to love the Lord. Or, um, as we'll see today, there could be a corrosive effect or a hardening that takes place as you're exposed to the Word of God. So uh, we pray that that does not happen. Uh, But at the same time, we know that faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of Christ or God. Hearing by the Word of God. Okay, so uh, Mark chapter 3 is where we are though. Mark chapter 3, as we've been preaching verse by verse through Mark. It's also a, a, an important feature, of what we believe in at this church, that we preach expository preaching, verse by verse. That way, um, the preacher doesn't get to pick and choose what he wants to preach, and instead, God is the one who, who tells the preacher what to preach, and, and we can't, we can't, um, we we can't get around it. So, um, chapter three of Mark, and we're going to read one through six. Let's pray for illumination first, and then we'll read. Our God, we come before you now, we pray that you would help us, O Holy Spirit, illuminate these words, help us to see Christ in all his glory, and all his beauty, and all his majesty, convict us, encourage your people today, O God, help us to behold Christ as as you desire us to in the right way, Lord, help us to behold the true Christ today, it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So first of all, look at the very first phrase of chapter 3, verse 1, where it says he entered again, again. So that is already tying us back into the previous references that we've had. So we've looked at the last, this this is the fifth uh, episode of conflict, the fifth one in a row that we've looked at. So the, the previous five, um, you see Christ cast out a demon, you see him forgive sins, you see him eat with sinners and tax collectors, um, you You see that he dispenses with fasting you see that he touches a leper you see that he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath which is a reference to his deity that he's Yahweh and so the last five or six episodes we've seen that everything that Christ does he's intentionally provoking things and we're going to see the same thing today, that there's a reason why he actually calls this man forward and says, stretch out your hand. He doesn't have to do that. He could have done it on Monday. He could have waited when it was just him and this guy who has a withered hand, but he doesn't. He intentionally calls this man forward as almost like a poking in the eye of these Pharisees. And we're going to see why in a minute. Uh, but first of all, okay, so he enters again into this synagogue. You remember the last time he was in a synagogue, um, there was a man lowered from a roof, he heals the man, but before he heals the man, he says, son, your your sins are forgiven. And remember, everybody's they're shocked because they say you're, you're blaspheming. And if you blaspheme in those days, it's not like if you blaspheme. If you go to Walmart, um, you go to anywhere, really, you're going to more than likely unfortunately hear somebody blaspheme god one or two times at least in my experience right you go in there you hear somebody's. so in those days if you do that flippantly like that you're going to be taken outside you're going to be stoned it's a very serious matter to blaspheme the lord's name and so here you have uh christ saying your sins are forgiven they immediately they're shocked they're saying that's blasphemy and it is blasphemy if he's not god but then he says well They say, actually, who else can forgive sins but God? And that's the whole point. So when you're looking at this, now he's back in the synagogue. And this is the same day, the same Sabbath day as what we saw last week. So last week, he was picking grain or his disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath. And they got in trouble for that. And then that's when he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, I know what I'm doing. I know what the rules are. And you have corrupted the rules. You've corrupted the regulation. The Sabbath is meant to be a blessing for man. You've gone in. You've tainted that. Well, here you're having a situation. It's the same day. So the atmosphere is already charged. It's already tense. That's the point to know. It's not like this is something that's completely new or anything like that. This is, this is coming on the heels of a lot of different episodes that have already taken place, including this morning. So verse 1, he enters again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. Okay, now, if you think about this, um, even in our culture, it's hard to get around. We had a, um, I've, I've been in a few churches where we have people with withered hands, and it's you know, it, it's not easy even for people in our culture. It's not easy. It's not an easy life. Um, a lot of times, especially now, especially in that culture, especially if you're a man, you're probably going to be deprived of certain work opportunities if you have a withered hand. You know, nowadays there might be some technology that you can use. You might be able to get around it a little bit. But the people that I know with withered hands, they're still, that means that your hand is not able to move. It's not able to function. It literally means dried up. Your, your hand is dried up. It's just what, it's, it's, it's not working right. And so you become the guy, you know, whenever somebody doesn't know somebody's name, that happens to me a lot, um, and I'm sorry for that. But, you know, if, if you don't, if, if, if this is the guy, unfortunately, where it's like, hey, if you don't know who he is, he's the guy with the withered hand. Right? And so it's not a good situation for this guy to be in. And he knows that. But here's the thing. When Christ is interacting with this man, the reason why this is such a big deal in the eyes of the Pharisees, when Christ says, stretch out your hand. okay, The Pharisees are there. Now look what they're doing. They're watching him closely to see what? To see if he would heal this man with the withered hand. Why? What's the big deal about this? Well, as we talked about two weeks ago, and last week actually, okay, their idea of the Sabbath was this. When they say you can't work on the Sabbath, they mean you can't work on the Sabbath, which means you can't pick up your child on the Sabbath. You can't set a fractured bone on the Sabbath. And you definitely, if somebody's, if somebody's in this condition and their disease or their illness is not life-threatening, if you come around and you help them, that becomes a work. Kind of like a doctor. That's doing medicine. On a day that you don't need to be doing medicine. You don't need to be do that, doing this. Later on, you'll see that the Pharisees say, Hey, look, you've got six days of the week that you can be healed on. Come back at that time. And again, Christ is doing this intentionally, right? Christ could have waited. He could have, come, he could have gone on a Monday. He could have gone on a Friday. But he intentionally comes and he calls this man out. Now, they're watching him. Now, here's the thing about when they're, what they're doing. Okay, When the Pharisees, when it says that they're watching him you remember earlier on whenever the uh, the first man who approached Christ in the synagogue, he was he, would, he had a demon in him and Christ healed that man of the demon caused the demon to go out and it says they glorified God, remember that so here's the opposite, right So, um, and this happens a lot, have y'all ever been in a situation, and I know so especially when, when I go and I preach on let's say a college campus or something and you'll get a lot of people there who aren't really interested in what you're doing or what you're saying, they just want to kind of catch you in something that you shouldn't say and so they got their phones out, you know, and this isn't just when, when I preach on the call, this happens anywhere, right? So have you ever met those people who are there to try to catch you, to try to capture something to get you in trouble? Those kinds of people, they're everywhere, right? Well, that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're not there, they're not interested in Christ, which is their first problem. They're interested in catching Christ and doing something that they can turn around and accuse him of so that they can put him to death. And, of course, Christ is going to give them a lot of fodder. It's just like in our culture. It's not hard to actually, I mean, all you have to do is be politically incorrect. It's not hard to be politically incorrect because everything in our culture is about political correctness, right? So, I mean, if you just take a biblical stand, you're going to be politically incorrect and you're going to be in trouble. And people are going to be after you. They're going to say, I got you. And they might, they might record it. They might get on Facebook and tell everybody, you know, so-and-so just did this. I got a phone call last week from uh, from, from I, I think it was regarding, they you know, they see the website of the church and they'll call you up. You get weird calls. And so it goes to my cell phone because we don't have a secretary or an office or anything. And so I, I answered and she started, and you, I could I could tell she was playing around, but I couldn't be certain. But she was saying, yeah, this is so-and-so. And and, and she says, I was just wondering if, if you could pray for me. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And she says, yeah, so, because uh, I'm getting married in two Weeks to uh, this, a, it's a woman, and she says, I'm getting married to two weeks to like Mary Sue or somebody. And and uh, and and and, um, and I got my, uh, my ex is trying to kill me, and he's trying to poison the cupcakes and all this. And so I'm like, All right, is she is she kind of out of her mind, or is she serious? Because if she's, if she's serious and I treat her like she's just joking around, I'm in trouble. So I'm going to go with it and just assume she's being very serious right now, right? But then over time, I can tell she's totally playing around. She's just trying to get you some kind of gotcha moment or something. And so uh, eventually she hung up on me because uh, she was asking me about homosexuality and stuff. And I was just telling her in the scriptures that this is what it means. And she was, anyway, she hangs up on me. But then I started thinking, I'm like, you know what? I hope she's not going to go on the website and start bashing and saying, you know, these, these people hate gays and this and that. You know, they do it, right? So it's kind of like that. So she wasn't sincere about wanting to know what the Word of God says about something. The Pharisees are not sincere about what Jesus Christ is teaching, about what Jesus Christ is doing. They just want to catch them in a trap. And it's something that every one of us, I guarantee you, are going to go through to some extent or another as we go on in this life and we become serious about our faith. We're going to go through this as we take a hard line or or, or, you can be compassionate by all means. Be compassionate and gracious. But if you take a stand on the scriptures, guess what? It's going to be politically incorrect. And people are going to say, I got you. Okay, so this happens to Christ, though. So what he does is he knows they're watching, which is great, in a sense, because he knows they're sitting there watching him. And so he could have said, you know what, since these guys are watching, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything today. I'll wait until tomorrow, whenever it's not the Sabbath, and then I'll come back and find this guy. He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does, verse 3, he says to the man with the weathered hand, get up and come forward. And again, you're like, wait a minute. He could have just healed the guy. Say he was in the back. You know, He could have said, hey, he heals him and that's it. Nobody even sees it, right? But he says, no, come forward. I want you to intentionally come forward. Now, when you read the commentaries on this, I don't know if I'm quite there yet, but they, they'll talk about how for this man, this was a real courageous act of faith for him to stand up in front of everybody and go forward. He's got a withered hand. and That's kind of, you know, of course, that would uh, it's, it's kind of frightening to be in front of a lot of people anyways. But if you have a withered hand, even more so. And so they'll talk about how this man showed courageous faith. I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe. I don't know if that's the point of this passage. I'll say that, right? It does take some courage, I'm sure. And I'm sure the, the, uh, the, the cortisol was being raised and stuff as you're around people. Yeah, maybe, right? Um, it is to say, and, and, and a lot of commentaries are saying, you know, they're saying like when, when Christ calls a person to faith, there are going to be embarrassing situations that he calls you to. I was like, yeah, that's true, right? That's true. Again, I don't know if that's the main gist of the passage, but that is true. So in Christ, you're going to be placed in situations that are uncomfortable, no doubt. Embarrassing, no doubt, because of Christ. So yeah, so we can look at that. But here's the thing. So he comes forward, right? Um, Verse 3. Christ says get up and come forward. So he does. He comes up. Now here's the thing, okay? Everything that Christ has done has been controversial. And I've said this a few times, but think about what he does. So we saw that number one, he's from Galilee. The Messiah is not supposed to be from up north. The Messiah is supposed to be from a sophisticated place like Jerusalem. He's supposed to have an education. He's supposed to be... Right? He, he doesn't though. So And not only that, he's supposed to call disciples who are educated, who are Pharisees or, or something of the educated class. He doesn't. Who does he call? He calls fishermen. And then later on Even more scandalous, he calls a tax collector. Who was the scum of that culture. He calls a tax collector. Also, he's baptized by John. And even John's like, wait a minute. I I should be baptizing you. Jesus says, no. You baptize me. Um, also, he leaves the big crowd. Remember when everyone's seeking Jesus, they all want to see where he is, and the disciples even come, and they're saying, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. You have to come back. And Jesus says, no, no, no. We're going to go somewhere else and preach the gospel over there. It's completely counter-cultural, especially, you know, especially if you're like talking about a church plan or something. It's like, all right, what's the best way to build a church? You know what we need, right? We need a lot of... Young like Tim and young, good looking guys who can play guitar and who can sing. And then we'll get a smoke machine. And then we'll get, you know, because why? That's going to be very appealing to people who are coming in. Christ says, who cares? You know what he's about? He's about preaching the gospel, telling people the truth, loving them, yes, but it's about preaching, it's about the truth being proclaimed. And God, through that truth, is going to work in the lives and the hearts of people. That's what it's about. That's what we see Christ doing. You say, "I don't care if the big crowds over here. We're going to go preach the gospel over here." And God's going to work a grace, a, a work of grace in that way. Think about: by the time Christ dies, He doesn't have very many disciples or followers. Most of them have left. But eventually, we know that there is going to be a large, a large amount of people on Pentecost who come in when the Holy Spirit comes down. Okay, so that's what we need. Anyway, so He's going through here. Now He also says that He's uh, the Bridegroom of the Old Testament which is a reference to him being Yahweh. So all these things, everything he does is controversial. And so when he comes here, and this man comes forward in verse 4, he says this, he says to him, now notice he doesn't just heal him. He could have. He could have just healed the guy. But he doesn't. He says something first, which is the whole point. He says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. So the first thing he asks, break this down, look. He says, is it lawful to do good or harm On the Sabbath. Okay, and harm there is another word for evil. So is it lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Well, of course, everyone's going to say good, right? Now, in the situation with this man who's handicapped, what Christ is doing is he's referring to this man. Okay? He's saying, if I heal this man, that's a good thing, right? Pharisees say, no, not right. But the Pharisees can't agree. The Pharisees can't come out and say, no, that's not right because they know the crowd's going to be upset. So they don't say anything. If you look down right after that in verse. Actually, that same verse, right after Christ finishes it, it says, but they kept silent. It shows how effective that question is. Christ is such an effective debater. Because he knows that the Pharisees can't say, hey, you know what, Jesus, it's evil for you to heal this man on the Sabbath. This man, who knows, he probably doesn't have a job. He's probably, right, we're looking at this, and of course we look at it in our culture, and we're saying, of course you can heal on the Sabbath. In this culture, it wasn't as black and white. Because again, they've had so much tradition, as we've talked about, the oral laws, the Mishnah and the Talmud, 1,500 different rules and regulations on the Sabbath day. And that culture was not so black and white that you could not do this, that it, was, that it was a good thing to heal on the Sabbath. And so they're looking at it, and they're kind of just waiting, and they're saying, well... Again, they're wanting to catch him. Everyone's waiting. The atmosphere is charged. But then the second question, check this out. He says, is it lawful to save a life or to kill? And this is where things get interesting. You know why? Because he's no longer talking about this man. This man's life is not in danger. If Christ doesn't heal this man of his disease, he's not going to go out and die. He's not going to fall over dead. Even if he never heals him, this man can live the rest of his life with a withered hand. That's not, I mean, it's bad, but it's not, it's not to say like, you know, it's not like uh, the child who's dead already. Right? This is a situation where, hey, if Jesus never heals him, he's not going to die. So who is Christ talking about? Is it lawful to save a life or to kill on the Sabbath? You know who he's talking about? He's, he's referring this to himself. Why? Because what are the Pharisees going to go do on the Sabbath day whenever Christ heals this man? They're going to go out and contemplate how to kill Jesus Christ. Look in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. You talk about irony. He's looking at the situation and he says, if I heal this man, and he knows, right? That's why he asked the question. If I heal this man, they're going to kill me. If I don't kill this man, I'll live. So now he's got an option. Christ has an option. This goes back to a sense. In the sense, it was kind of like the leper. The leper is an outcast. He's cut off from society. But when he comes in and Christ heals him, the, the leper who was the outcast is no longer the outcast, but Christ is now the outcast. Because everybody's going to go seek him and the man turns around and goes and tells everybody what he's done. So now he has big crowds and he has a lot of authorities on his tail. So now he's got to be the outcast. Christ is now the outcast. Here's the same way. If, if, he, say, if he heals this man, if he restores this man, his own neck is at, at stake. So that's what he's talking about. This is substitutionary atonement. This is a preview of what Christ is going to do on the cross. Why? Because when he goes to the cross, same thing, right? Even before he comes to earth, think about, the, think about the options that Christ has. The Father does not twist the arm of Jesus Christ and kick him out of heaven and make him come to earth. He doesn't. Christ is not forced to come to earth. Christ voluntarily takes on flesh, comes to earth, lays down his life as a ransom. On behalf of his people. You see that? So in other words, even before he comes to earth, he's already substituting his his life, his pleasure, the worship of angels, peace, joy, everything he had in heaven. He sacrifices all of it. For the sake of taking on flesh, coming to earth, condescending, coming to earth for the sake, as we saw earlier in, in Romans, for the sake of people who are hostile in mind against him. You know, before you and I are saved, we don't love God. The Bible says we don't love God. In fact, in Romans 3, it says no one even seeks for God. God comes and seeks us. But yet, here is this Christ who is looking at this man with the withered hand, knowing, and again, this is not a life and death situation. He knows, hey, if I heal this man, this is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. This is going to be the thing that puts the chain of of things, the the, the chain of events is going to start now, where eventually it's it's going to go from verse 6, where the Pharisees and the Herodians begin to conspire they begin to deliberate. They begin to talk about how can we get rid of this man. And it's going to culminate later on in his death. But it begins right here, and that, I mean, it's so strange. It's just like this subtle, of all, of all the things that Christ does. Right? Because why? Because it's a culmination of things. It's a snowball effect. And then finally it's like, okay. And Christ knows if he heals him physically, materially, from the world, from the human perspective, he's undone it's over and so what does he do well he gets nervous and walks away doesn't do anything, he's quiet, right no, what's he do now that's sometimes, and here's the, here's the application for us right, when we're in this situation what is the tendency or the temptation for us to do if I'm going, if somebody's in need or if there's a situation where I have to when I have to confess my faith or something like this, I'm in that situation and I know if I do this there's consequences, there's repercussions I'm in trouble What do I do? Right? Here we have a beautiful example of Jesus Christ who says, you know what? I'm going to do it anyways because it's the right thing. And he does it. Look what he does in verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. I want to look at just for a moment um, this word for anger. Okay? The word in the New Testament in the Greek would be something like rage. Okay? Okay? After looking around at them with rage. Now think of this, okay? When we think of Christ in general, there is a tendency, I would think, I don't know, to see Christ as kind of like a very polished, soft, shampoo model type of guy. He has a Joel Osteen smile and beautiful long hair. He's kind of funny at times. He kind of loves everybody. Eats with everybody, you know. So here's the thing, right? When you look at, when you actually look at Scripture, Christ is, a, he has a range of emotions, and that's a good thing. Now we know that Christ never sins. So when it says here that he's filled with rage or anger, okay, we know that, like it says in the Scriptures, be angry but do not sin. And we're like, well, how do you do that? And I haven't figured that out. I uh, haven't figured that out. But Christ, now we know that Christ was perfect in this. Okay, Christ. Always if he's angry, if he's outraged, it's always why? For self um, excuse me, not self-righteousness is for um, what's the word? Righteous indignation. Yeah. So turn, turn to Psalm 2. Check this out, Psalm 2. So I want to I go to a few places so that you see, so that you notice this is not just like a once in the whole Bible kind of thing. When you're talking about Christ, and this is important to know, okay? So when you're talking about righteous indignation, okay, that's the thing about Christ. You and I can have righteous indignation too, by the way. And in fact, I would say, and that's one of the things I want to look at, I would say if you don't have righteous indignation, that's a big, big red flag. If you never experience righteous indignation, especially in our culture... This is a God-hating culture, and it's all around us. And if you have never experienced righteous indignation, I would say that that is a huge red flag that something in your something in your system's off. Okay, Christ, though, never had a problem with righteous indignation. Look at Psalm 2, okay? So Psalm 2 begins with all the nations in an uproar, the people's are devising of anything, they're trying to bring down God, they're trying to they're trying to storm the gates of God so that they can tear him down, okay? This is God's response. So God laughs in verse 4 and he scoffs at them, etc. And then he talks about his son. He talks about how he's installed his king on verse verse 6. He's installed his king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then and then Christ is here Christ is speaking in 7 through 10. And then look at verse 11. Okay? This is the response. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Your translation might say kiss the Son. Do homage to the Son that He not become what angry and you perish in the way. Remember in Revelation where it talks about how everyone was hiding in rocks and they're diving into caves and diving into holes. Why? To hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. So where does this come from? How can you have a Christ who is the most compassionate, most patient person, absolutely, who has ever walked this earth, and yet you also have these things, you have these moments where you're like, okay, well, it says that Christ is looking around at them. In verse 5 of chapter 3 of Mark, by the way, where it says after looking around, this is a very commanding scope of things. There's an intentional word here that's being used that's saying it's not just a casual glance. He is, it's, a commanding, it's a commanding look, okay? But he says this, okay, when he's filled with rage or he's filled with anger, That anger is expressed in a way that always is pleasing to the Father. Because if you and I are angry about what? I don't know. Um, The children in the gay bar with the drag queen show in Dallas last week. You look at that. Alright, that makes, yeah, that makes me upset. Now, does it mean you go in there and just turn tables over? If you get the chance, yeah. Kick everybody out. Yeah, of course. Compassionately, though. With compassion, right? But is it to say, here's the thing, right? So you and I, we have to watch out because we so quickly go off the rails. And we so quickly, our our righteous indignation so quickly becomes fleshly and sinful. All right? And I I tell you what, I promise you, I know that very well, okay, personally. So we have to watch that. Christ... In a sense, although he too has to watch that because it's not like Christ was, was, um, Christ was tempted in every way that we've been tempted. And at the same time, his expression of anger here is always, he never steps beyond into sin. He never crosses the line into sin with his anger. Okay, but if you're ever wondering when the Bible talks in the Old Testament about God's anger and His righteousness, or His his wrath, His anger, His indignation, more times than it talks about His compassion, His goodness, His love, all these things, His mercy, how is that? Well, it's because, and we've said this before in in Mark, it's because anger, anger and love go hand in hand. They're not opposite. The opposite of or the opposite of love is indifference, apathy. When you don't care, anger is not the opposite of love. The reaction of love is anger. Whenever the thing that you love is messed with, whenever the thing that you love is tampered with, if you love God, you're going to be angered, you're going to have this righteous indignation, this 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 something that comes over you that we can all you can't describe, but you all know whenever you see evil being done, right? We know that. That's a good thing, and that's the kind of God that we serve. We serve a God who is angry with the wicked every day. Praise God. Praise God. Because what, what's the other option? A God who's not angry with the wicked? A God who is cool with everything they do? A God with... You know, that... that so we, we, have, we have a God who is good. And because of that goodness, He expresses anger against unrighteousness. So these men here are calloused. You know, here's the thing about the Pharisees here as we get down to the end. The thing about the Pharisees is that I heard a good illustration... You know, when it comes to this hardness of heart, that's what it says in verse 6 Now, or verse 5. Also, don't don't miss this part where it says he's grieved at the hardness of heart. And I think that's important too. So when we have this righteous indignation, there should be this grief involved in it too. This compassion, this feeling of pity, right? Because apart from God's grace, I would do the same thing. Apart from God's grace, I would be in that bar with my children celebrating who knows what. That would be me. So there should be this pity, there should be this compassion, this grief whenever we're dealing with it. But the illustration was, um, he's talking about, you know how some people, and my brother always makes fun of me because when you shake my hand, I guess I have soft hands, and when you shake his hand it feels like you're you're touching like... like a, a a brillo cloth or something, where it's just because he's you know he's a blue collar guy. He works with his hands, but but the point is is uh, the illustration was you know when you when you when you discipline your hands when you're using your hands a lot what happens your hands become rough your hands become callous they become hard and so what his, his illustration was this these Pharisees and not only the Pharisees. But these people who have been exposed to things of Christ over and over and over again, what happens is that they continually reject the things that they're seeing and over time their hearts become hardened and more calloused and more calloused and more callous. so that eventually they, they are completely insensitive to the fact that they are about to murder the king of the universe. They don't even know. And that's our culture. That's so much of our culture right now. And that can be, here's the thing, that can also be us. And that goes back to what I was going to say earlier. Um, Actually, look at verse 6. After he heals him, he stretches out his hand, the man. Christ heals him. He's restored. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Now you might think that that's just, hey, of course the Pharisees and the Herodians are just getting together. Well, the thing is, is and we talked about the, uh, the Pharisees and how the Pharisees hated anything that had any, anyone or anything that had anything to do with, with Rome or Greek culture, Hellenism, paganism. They despised it. The Pharisees despised it. Well, who are the Herodians? The Herodians are the people who are followers or disciples of uh, Herod Antipas. And who is Herod? Herod the guy that has locked up John the Baptist in jail. He's also the guy who's being paid by Rome to kind of govern that whole area. He's a pawn of Rome. And so Herodians are people that are in league with Rome. And yet they're teaming up with Pharisees. Otherwise, these guys would be complete enemies. They're, they're opposites. They're not going to work together. But when it comes to this common nuisance, this common enemy, they're like, you know what? It's worth working together so, that, so so that we can rid the earth of this guy. Which shows you how monstrous they have become and how quickly. I mean, Christ has not been on the scene for very long, but they realize that that they uh, you know they're they're not only um, not only the religion and the traditions the ancestral authority and not only that but the peace and stability of Rome they're all at stake now so they're like you know what we got to get rid of this guy we got to get rid of his disciples I don't care what he's doing but they're trying to justify it Now, now here's the thing were all Pharisees bad were there any Pharisees that were converted now we know Paul was but even in the time of Christ's life there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who comes to Christ at night most of the time people say he comes at night because he's he's afraid don't want to be exposed. But he's like, Lord, how are you... We know you're a teacher of the law or a teacher from God. We know that. But at the same time, it's because he's troubled by all the things because his heart has become so embittered and so calloused by the traditions of men that he can't even recognize that what Christ is doing is Christ is going back to God's Word and saying, you guys, the Pharisees, have mis- you guys have misapplied all of these things about God's Word. And and later on, Nicodemus is going to be one of the guys who helps take the body of Jesus Christ down and helps embalm Jesus Christ's body, puts the ointment and, and the spices on there, which is really nice because some Pharisees, as they're seeing what Christ is doing, who knows, Nicodemus could have been here. But it's not to say all Pharisees are bad, but it is to say that in this situation, what's going on is they're looking at this situation and they recognize that, you know what? I don't like what he's doing. Let's try to kill him. Now, here's what I was going to ask, okay? Number one, look. There are there are unbiblical traditions and really um, in our culture and it, it's just something that we constantly have to guard against unbiblical traditions. We have to always constantly guard against that. Uh, Rome is a great example of this where you have the situation. They start out over here, over time. You look at the Roman Catholic Church today compared to where it was. And I'm not saying it was good back then, but I'm saying it looks nothing like where it was. And Paul the Apostle would definitely recognize nothing about the Roman Catholic Church if he walked into one right now. He would say, what is this? Because of the traditions that have been implemented and that accumulate over time. And so number one, it's it's not just in a church setting or even a religious setting. It can be anything. I could point, you know, one of those things is like an altar call. One of those things would be um, a sinner's prayer. You know, these things are not in the Scriptures, but in some way we've kind of... We've kind of identified Christianity or as far as certain things in Christianity with these items, right? There, there are several more than just two. But these things are not in Scripture. You're never going to see anybody having a sinner's prayer in Scripture. You, you see, repent, believe the gospel in Scripture. And also, you're never going to see anybody walk an aisle or anything. And it's like when you do walk an aisle, what are you walking up to? Like If you're going to turn to Christ, turn to Christ back there, you know? You don't need to come to me and do it. Turn to Christ in your seat. And then if you want to make something public about it, if you've been baptized, you can make a public profession of faith. Or if you haven't, you can be baptized. Right? But I'm saying those are two. And those aren't the only two. But there are, there are many more. But I'm saying this, okay? In our own lives and in everything we do, we got to constantly, we have to constantly be reforming back to Scripture. That's going to protect us from these unbiblical things that Christ is, that Christ is opposing right now. Um, also, number two, the, the righteous indignation stuff, okay? Does sin grieve you? That's very important, right? Does sin grieve you? That is huge, because if we've gotten to the place where sin, our own sin—forget the culture sin right now—you know, I mean that's easy to point fingers. Our own sin, if our own sin, whether it's bitterness, resentment, um, whatever—if our own sin—if we become more and more callous to it, and it's so quick, it happens so quickly—that's where we have to start right there. And if you're, here's the, here's what's difficult, right? If you're hardened about sin. How can you tell that you're hardened about sin? Because you're hardened to it. Right? So that's the first thing to do. Is go to the Lord and ask Him to show you where in your life these sins have become callous. Where you've become calloused about these things in your life that, that, that Christ is trying to work out of you. Because I guarantee you. Maybe it's, maybe not, actually. I'll say it for myself. I guarantee you about me anyways. There are things in my life that I'm callous to that need to be done away with. And I'm assuming that's all of us. So that's what we see here. Make sure, because it's easy for us to say, oh, those Pharisees are so bad, they're so horrible, right? Blame them. But are we doing the same thing with our own sin? Okay, and then, and then lastly, remember Christ's substitutionary atonement. Most importantly, remember how much Christ truly does love us. How, he, how much He cares for us, that He's willing to not just come to earth, but He actually comes to earth to suffer on our behalf, to die on our behalf. Just like He stands in the gap to heal this man, He places Himself in a situation which is going to expose Him to death itself. Yet He heals the man so, in the same way, and in an even even bigger way, spiritual way, He exposes Himself to the wrath that you and I deserve on the cross. So that you and I in Christ will never be exposed to the wrath of God. Christ Himself drinks down our wrath on the cross. It was Him who knew no sin, who was bruised, who was crushed, On our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the whole point of all of this. Otherwise, it's moralism. Right? Otherwise, this is just like a feel-good lesson. No, this is about when Christ comes in and saves us, we can rejoice knowing that no matter what I do, no matter what sins are in my life, if Christ has truly forgiven me, if He's truly saved me, I'm not going to hell. And yet, at the same time, because He saved me, I now owe Him my life. And I want to give Him my life. And I want to be holy. And I want to live as He lived. Not to get anything from it, but because I've already seen, I've, I've received everything already in Him. So now I live my life in light of that, to honor Him, to glorify Him, to worship Him, to love Him, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, and that's what we see Christ doing. So He gives us the greatest, uh, the greatest model of that. So let's pray, and then, um, and then we'll have the Lord's Supper, which ties in with exactly what we're saying. So let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for Christ. We praise you that apart from Christ. We would be wasting our time this afternoon, but because of Christ, we thank you that because of Him, life does have purpose, life has value, our lives have value, our sufferings have value, the things that we go through, ridicule, scandal, whatever it is, Lord, if it's for Christ, we praise you because it has value. Lord, give us grace to have righteous indignation and yet to not sin. Lord, give us that grace, that ability that can only come from you to... To, to be grieved and to be upset about the things that we see in this world and even in our own lives and yet not to have uh, fleshly anger or fleshly rage Lord that it would be a, a, a that it would be an anger that is filled with compassion and with grief and with pity and with mercy God give us that grace thank you for Christ thank you for the example of Christ Lord what a what a man to be able to come to earth what a what a god man to, to take on flesh and and yet, um, to suffer in the ways that we suffer, to be tempted in the ways that we 've been tempted, and yet to never have a single deviant thought or a single wrong thing that he says, Lord, thank you for him, thank you for his perfect life, thank you for his death, thank you for his resurrection Lord, go with us now as we come to your table that you would bless that help us to draw near to you thank you for coming to us in this table at this table in christ 's name amen